know that a lot of you listen to me on the my own podcast, An Intelligent Look at Terrorism or The Quick Hits. But I'm finding now and then I'm being invited on other podcasts, which to me is a lot of fun. It's neat to go on someone else's version of podcasting to see what their points of view are on a number of issues. Obviously, they want me on because we talk about terrorism or violent extremism. And in this regard, I had a really interesting conversation on the David Pakman show, which you're about to listen to. It's not that long, about 20 minutes. We talk about a variety of things to do with foreign fighters, what we do about them, how we treat terrorism, how we define terrorism and things like that. So I really hope you enjoy the podcast. It was a lot of fun for me and i uh, love to hear what you think about it. It is great to welcome to the program today, Phil Gursky, who's a 30 year Canadian intelligence veteran, author of five books on terrorism and also host of the podcast, An Intelligent Look at Terrorism. Phil, it's great to have you on today. Hey, it's great to be here, David. Thanks for inviting me on the show. So, I mean, where to start, right? I guess <laughs> the, the war on terror has now been waged for decades. Yeah. Uh, how is it going? Are, are we winning it yet? <laughs> uh, no, we're not. And, you know, you referenced the fact that I've written five books my fourth book was actually entitled An End to the War on Terrorism. I hate the term. I've hated it since day one. As you noted in your introduction, I worked in security intelligence. for the, So for the Canadian Security Intelligence Service, kind of like an FBI-CIA hybrid, we looked at homegrown plots, Canadians traveling to join Al-Qaeda, later ISIS, etc., Al-Shabaab in Somalia. And yet we're framing this through the military. And the problem is, as, a, as a American academic said very wisely after 9-11, he says, whatever you do, don't declare a war on a common noun, because it never ends. Think of the war on drugs in your country. Think on the war on poverty. Think on the war on any common noun. Because he said, common nouns don't surrender, whereas proper nouns do. So you ask me, how is it going? It's going well and not so well. Uh, well in the sense that in your country and mine, we're not seeing terrorist attacks on a regular basis. Let's face it, that's, that, that's true. And yet, if you look at the news on any given day, David, which I do as a, as a regular course, even though I'm retired, I'm still involved in this business, every day in Afghanistan, Somalia, or Nigeria, or Iraq, or Syria, there's an attack. And in, in several cases, many attacks per day in those countries. So it's going both well and not so well, depending on your perspective, I guess. Here in the United States, um, there is an interesting report from the Anti-Defamation League, which I referenced before, which looked at a politically based domestic terror killings, so to speak. And they are overwhelmingly right wing. The numbers, yeah. I, as I recall, I think in 2019 were 76 percent right wing, 20 yeah. percent Islamic extremism and then 4 percent left or sort of miscellaneous. Now, right. from from a logistical perspective, when I hear that someone believes their religion should be the law of the land and is willing to kill for those reasons, to me, that sounds right wing. So when I think of Islamic extremism, it's often framed as left wing. It sounds really right wing to me in the intelligence community. Is there a position on that, on the characterization of Islamic violence? Wow, I, I've never thought of it in that term before. We certainly looked at Islamist extremism as our number one threat. <clears throat> we had several plots in the 2000s and the 2010s. Several hundred Canadians went to join ISIS, et cetera, et cetera. We had a small right wing desk, which frankly wasn't very busy when I retired in 2015. I'm sure it's busier right now. Uh, I would push back a little bit on the stats. It's true that in your country, obviously, the far right is about two thirds or three quarters of the incidents. Yeah. Around the world, it's still 95 percent Islamist extremism. If yes. you look at the numbers across the world. No, no denial uh, whatsoever. 
Yeah. Uh, yeah, the way you framed it is really interesting. So I did write a book. My last book was entitled When Religions Kill. And I looked at how every religion has within it an extreme element that justifies killing in the name of God. Judaism, Christianity, even Buddhism. My God, Buddhist extremists should be an oxymoron. And yet there are Buddhist terrorists in Sri Lanka, in Thailand, and Myanmar. I guess you would say that Islamist extremists are conservative. They're definitely very intolerant. The view of Islam that they try to force on people is exclusionary. Essentially, it's my way or the highway. Uh, Bernard Lewis, the American academic, academic, said very famously after 9-11, it's like it's, I'm right, you're wrong, go to hell. That's the way these people see the world. So I guess from that perspective, we would look at it as, as, as right wing. But from my experience working in the Canadian intelligence community, it was its own separate task. And it was the lion's share of the counterterrorism work for the better part of the 20 years you just referred to in the post 9-11 period. When we think about the radicalization of individuals, uh, when I've interviewed domestic extremists in the United States, like former KKK and white nationalists and others, almost exclusively, there's a story of there was a lack of empathy mm -hmm. and support mm -hmm. in their lives, which led them vulnerable to sort of join up with whoever paid mm -hmm. them attention and accept the orthodoxy that they presented in in international terror and the work that you did. Is it a similar pattern? What leads to the radicalization of an individual? Uh, wow, how much time do we have? I mean, my very first book, The Threat from Within, looked at it, and I, I was based it on ca cases I worked in Canada, on classified information, obviously. But we found the opposite, David. We found that these people were run-of-the-mill average Canadians. They were average from a socioeconomic status. They were average from an educational background. They were average from a family background. They were average insofar as we could tell. We're not psychologists from a mental health perspective. Hmm. There was nothing that sort of divided them or separated them from the general Canadian populace. And I, I've seen the same stats for the for United States as well. In terms of Islamist extremism, I do think that when you look at the far right, KKK, you know, the Boogaloo Boys, you might see that kind of a bit of a tendency towards the down and out in life. You know, you, you often hear the term marginalized. You hear the term uh, not making ends meet, uh, you know, failing in education, failing at relationships, failing at, at work. You don't see that on the Islamist side, but of course you have exceptions. You, you look at a country like France. Yeah, and a lot of the people who join ISIS and Al-Qaeda in France are on the lower socioeconomic spectrum. But I would argue you look at French Muslim society in general, and it's generally speaking, it's on the lower. You know, your country and my country are very different. Muslims in our country have tend to tend to do very, very well. They tend to be highly educated. They tend to be have good jobs, solid families, etc. In Europe, that's not the case for all kinds of historical reasons. Bottom line, David, is that there's no pro profile to any of this, and people that try to profile get into trouble because when you try to profile, you run into two problems. Yes. One, one's what I call a false positive. If you think that all jihadis or all right-wing guys are X, and somebody is X and is not a jihadi, that's a problem. And then if you say that no jihadis are well-educated or no KKK are well-educated, the first guy with a PhD, you don't look at because he doesn't fit your, your profile. So when we were worked at, at, when I worked for the Canadian Security Intelligence Service, we didn't have a profile. We looked at activity. We looked at you know, online uh, statements, which we had warrants to intercept. We looked at what they said and what they did, not who they were, where they came from, or what their particular circumstances were. And I think that was, a, that was successful for us. When it comes to the leaders of terrorist organizations over the last 20 years, we've all seen endless headlines of the number two was killed, <laughs> the number three, you know, what, whatever. Yeah, yeah. How how important is that to actually fighting terror? And I'll, I'll make the question sort of a two part question. Okay. One, 
if what we're fighting is an ideology, is the ideology affected by killing an individual? Is it sometimes, sometimes yes, sometimes no? Okay. And then number two, even from the operational standpoint, how effective is it to kill the number one, the number two, the number three guy? I'm going to give you an answer. You're not going to like it depends. OK, so so in, in some groups, it's all about the leader. You look at a group like Shining Path, the Sedeto Luminoso in Peru. When Guzman was taken by the Peruvians back in the early 90s, the group never really recovered. They're still around, but they're a shadow of their, of their former selves. You look at Al Qaeda. Bin Laden's gone. Now, Ayman al-Zawahiri can't hold a candle to Bin Laden from a, from a charismatic perspective. He's the he's like watching paint dry. And yet Al Qaeda is still around. We got Baghdadi, right, a couple of years ago. You guys got Baghdadi. ISIS is just as strong, if not stronger, than it ever was. A better case is maybe the PKK in Turkey, the, the Kurdish militant group. The Turks ca captured Abdul Ojalan back in 1994. He's been in prison on an island in Turkey for the better part of you know, over 20 years. The, K the PKK is carrying out attacks on a weekly basis in eastern Turkey. So the, 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 the short answer is it depends on the nature of the group and the control of which the leader has against within that group. The second part of your question is, look, it's never a bad thing to take out a major terrorist. We always used to say a dead terrorist is a good terrorist. You don't have to investigate him anymore. You don't have to worry about him. He can't exert his influence, et cetera, et cetera. Now, we can argue about rule of law and whether or not extraterritorial assassinations are legal. That's a whole other discussion. So taking guys out is never a bad thing. The problem is it rarely, if ever, means the end. And I, I'm, I'm tired of reading headlines. You know, we've got so-and-so. This is the end of group number X, X, Y, or Z. It never is or very rarely is because, as you mentioned, it's the ideology that's important, not the individual. The individual can be charismatic, attract people, retain people, inspire people. But charismatic people are sometimes a dime a dozen. It's the ideology that matters. That's what you have to undermine. And that's a lot more difficult to carry. You can't carry a drone strike against an ideology, unfortunately. I, I want to get back to that. But because you mentioned, you know, the question as to the legality of extraterritorial killings of suspected terrorists in the work you did, did that play at all in, in your work? Or is that sort of like that was handled? The, the legal questions mm -hmm. were are handled somewhere else. Absolutely. So we're, we're essentially we were essentially a domestic intelligence service, but we had an, an international remit because Canadians were fighting with the Taliban and Al Qaeda, things like that. We had lawyers, obviously, that, that were able to guide us. But we followed the law in the sense that we went to court to get warrants to intercept people's communications. You have to do that. You just can't, you know, follow somebody on, you know, on, on, on Twitter or, or intercept it because that's illegal in Canada. So from our perspective, we provided intelligence. And you provide it to decision makers. Now, sometimes the decision makers might be in the Canadian military or the U.S. military, and they will decide to do with that intelligence whatever that their mandate says that they can do. I didn't lose sleep at night personally about my intelligence being used in a way that I might not necessarily agree with from my own ethical perspective. Because first of all, a Canada is a pretty small player, right? We're not carrying out drone strikes like you guys are in Yemen and Afghanistan and and and, and Somalia. So from that perspective, it wasn't as important. I do think there's a bigger conversation around this. And I know what, that when Anwar al-Awlaki, who was the American who was killed in Yemen a couple of years ago, that raised a real kerfuffle in your country because he was an American citizen and didn't get his day in court, right? He wasn't yes. able to, to refute the charges against him. I didn't lose sleep over Awlaki because he was a major instigator. He was a major charismatic leader of al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. There wasn't a single Canadian that didn't follow his writings or his videos online. So him disappearing was, it was a good, good news day for us. But on the other side of the coin, I do understand the legal ramifications of it. But when you work in intelligence, you provide the best information you can to those that can use it and you do so to the best of your ability. OK, so now that that 
being kind of framed in terms of your work when we think about what does work to root out an ideology. Um, I mean, is it one one area that doesn't seem to be discussed enough is sort of the economic situation in the source countries. And when we talk about undocumented immigration here in the United States, you know, the current administration talks about walls and they talk about, you know, jail and all this stuff. If the economic circumstances were better in the source countries, the demand for trying to come to the United States illegally would would decrease dramatically. Can does that apply to mm -hmm. thinking about the ideologies that rise and the way in which people can be indoctrinated? Can that be separated from the context in which these countries are, are existing? You're asking really tough questions for me on Canada Day. Uh, that's a tough one. I, again, it, it depends, because if you look at 9-11, for example, 15 of the 19 hijackers that attacked New York and Washington were rich Saudi individuals. They didn't right. have any socioeconomic problems. I do think that it obviously makes sense from a humanitarian and global stability perspective to make sure that every country is as economically feasible and, and workable as, as possible. And yes, it might, in fact, um, prevent or, or convince people to stay at home rather than come to Canada, United States. I mean, you know, we take in 1% of our population every year by immigration. We take in 300,000 people a year. So it's 1%. It's Your country has a similar high rate. At least it did under the current president, maybe not so much. So I, I think that, put it this way, David, it can't hurt but I'm not necessarily certain that it would be enough to undermine the ideology. The ideology has to be undermined by the vast majority of people who, who live in that greater polity, be it Islam or Buddhism or Hinduism or Judaism, whatever, who fight against it, who say, this is not what we represent. This is not what our faith tells us to do. This is not what the founders of our religion said is a good thing to do. It's only those people that can say, this is wrong. We're not going to support it. And we're going to actively undermine what you're trying to do. That to me, and I've seen it happen here in Canada on a limited scale, that to me is the only way we're going to say, you'll get rid of the Islamist extremist ideology or the Hindu extremist ideology in India, which is very worrisome, by the way, these days with what Modi is doing with his support from very violent Hindu extremists in, in the RSS and other parts of Indian society. Those are the people that have to stand up with our support and basically talk down and, and, and get rid of the ideology that is being spewed by a very small minority within their communities. That's not, let's not exaggerate this, right? Very, very few people espouse this ideology. They well, that's very... why, I mean, that's why when I hear you saying it has to be made clear by everybody else that this is not acceptable, it seems that that's already sort of the case, right? I mean, I guess I would, what you're saying sounds so intuitive and yet it starts to sound sort of like, you know, where, where are all of the moderate Muslims denouncing this? Yeah. And it's like, well, they, they are right. I mean, it's so, so it, it starts to get into sort of dicey territory because you're already talking about such a small portion of the pop of any population. Well, I would also counter that you're not going to get rid of this ideology. It's not going to disappear tomorrow. I mean, communism, which we fought against, I started my career in the cold war in 1983. It was all Soviet union, this Soviet union, that, that founded, and yet look what's happening now in, in modern Russia. You could argue it's a resurgence of the communist ideal or whatever you want to call it. So the, the ideology is not going to you know, vanish poof one day into the ether. It's always going to be there. What you're trying to do is to make it such that it's an irritant, not an all-encompassing sort of, um, I don't know, this obsession you have. It's all terrorism all the time, but it's, you know, it's not all terrorism all the time. In my country, and I'm actually researching a book on the history of terrorism in Canada from Confederation, which is 153 years ago today, you know, we've suffered at most 20 attacks in 153 years. Now, mind you, we went a century between attack one and attack two, but you get my point, right? We're not Afghanistan. 
We're not Somalia. We're not Nigeria. We're not Yemen. Neither, neither is your country. Neither are most countries in Western Europe. So how can we get away from this obsession about terrorism? Let our counterterrorism agencies do their jobs, as well as law enforcement, get citizenry involved to talk these guys down, to, to, to either ignore them or to counter their views. But let's not think of that we're, you know, we're suddenly existentially threatened by terrorism. This is not an existential threat, David. It is if you're, if you're for an Afghan. It's not if you're an American, and it's not if you're a Canadian. We've been speaking with Phil Gursky, who's a 30-plus year Canadian intelligence veteran, author of five books on terrorism, also hosts the podcast, An Intelligent Look at Terrorism. Phil, I so appreciate your time today. My pleasure, David. Maybe we can do this again sometime. Thank you.